Author Bill Myers once said of Jesus, I'd rather die whispering your name than live an empty life shouting my own. Long before he wrote his letter to the church in Rome, uh, long before his great missionary journeys, long before he planted churches across the Mediterranean world, in fact, long before his conversion to Christianity in the first century, Saul of Tarsus, of course later known as the Apostle Paul, he was well known at the time for his impressive education, having studied under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. He was also a powerfully influential Pharisee and held the coveted status of Roman citizen. In his letter to the Philippian church, he described himself as of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Philippians 3, 5, and 6. It's quite a resume. Paul was an accomplished intellectual with great influence, power, popularity, probably wealth, before his conversion to Christianity. And yet he went on to say that he considered all of that as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, Philippians 3.8. And of course, we know he spent the rest of his life living that way, giving up all that he'd held so dear in his former life to live a completely new life in Christ. But why? I mean, you can understand someone who has nothing, someone coming from a place of destitution, someone going without, facing great need, turning to Jesus, but why would a man who had everything a man could ever want throw it all away to follow Jesus? Before his conversion in the 17th century, the great mathematician, physicist, and inventor Blaise Pascal was known as a child prodigy. He made profoundly important contributions to mathematics and science and economics as a teenager. And yet after Converting to Christianity, he abandoned mathematics and physics, instead writing and speaking extensively on biblical theology. And in doing so, he took on the religious establishment, defying the doctrines and practices of Pope Alexander VII and infuriating the king himself. In fact, Pascal's writings were so controversial at the time that King Louis XIV ordered them shredded and burned. His sister Jacqueline, who came to Christ at the same time he did, left her comfortable life to enter the convent at Port Royal, devoting the rest of her days to living out the gospel while Blaise lived out the rest of his life embroiled in controversy over his stand for the truth of God's word. And having given away his own home to a poor family, Pascal died in relative poverty. In his last literary work, he wrote, For after all, what is man in nature? A nothing in relation to infinity. He is equally incapable of seeing the nothingness out of which he was drawn and the infinite in which he is engulfed. Why would a man with such promise and prestige at such an early age throw it all away to follow Jesus? Before his conversion to Christianity, Charles Thomas Studd was a famous 19th century English cricketer. He was a well-known athlete who came to Christ, giving up wealth and fame to live a meager life as a missionary. Against his family's vehement protests and giving up a massive inheritance, he moved to China, where he eventually married another missionary, Priscilla Livingstone Stewart, and together they served in China and India. And then, of course, later alone, Charles served in Africa. He said this, I know that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, 
Nothing in this world would last, but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. Peculiar. Why would a man with such fame and success and respect throw all of it away to follow Jesus? Perhaps Pascal said it best when he said, the gospel to me is simply irresistible. You see, throughout history, there have been men and women who have given up, completely sworn off fame and wealth and power and influence and material success, everything you could ever possibly want in this life to follow Jesus Christ instead. Why would they do that? Well, it's because for them, being alive in Christ exceeded any other life you could ever hope to live, even the very best this world had to offer. Many of them knew firsthand what that was, yet it was no comparison to what the gospel had to offer, and therefore it shaped the rest of their lives. It was the revelation that although once dead in their trespasses and sin, they were now alive in Christ that informed not just their outlook on eternity, but their daily lives as well. It was the deciding factor in how they spent their time and who they spent it with. It determined how they spent their money and what they spent it on. It directed them to go to particular places and share that new life with particular people. It informed every aspect of their lives every day. Because their newfound life in Christ was the center of their universe. For them it was everything, which meant everything else came second. Everything else in their lives had to bow in reverence to the preeminence of the gospel because they were alive in a way they never had been before and it changed them. It changed everything about them. In fact, it had to for them then. And the truth is, well, it has to for us today as well. Because we are all, every one of us, we are affected by this gospel story. Whether you want to be or not, whether you believe you are or not, or realize it or not, the effects of this ancient story affect every human being one way or another, as Paul explains in his letter to the church at Rome, as we're going to see as we continue to work our way through Romans. And so, look, as we look at these ancient stories together and the Christians who lived them, right, men and women who willingly eagerly gave up fame and wealth and power and influence and material success, everything you could ever want in this life to follow Jesus Christ instead. As natural as it can be to ask the question, why would they do that? Maybe the better question is for us to ask, why don't we? Is the gospel preeminent in your life or is it just a part of your life? Because as we pick the story back up where we left off last time, where Paul discussed the reconciling work of Jesus Christ, he now begins to show us what the implications of that reconciling work are, what it truly means to be alive in Christ, and why that should be the center of your universe, shaping and informing every aspect of your life. So let's jump back into the story together where we left off last time, Romans chapter 5. And we'll pick it up where we left off at uh, verse 12 and read through verse 21. So Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And verses 1 through 11 of this same chapter, the verses that precede the ones we just read, which we covered last time, and then again in the first nine verses of chapter 6, which immediately follow what we just read, in both of those sections of Scripture on either side, the pronoun we is constant. It's repeated over and over and over and over again. And yet in this entire portion of the story here that we just read, verses 12 through 21, you'll notice there isn't one single we, which is actually deeply significant because although we are certainly informed and affected by this story, Paul makes a departure from talking about us and our part in it to focus instead on the reason for the story to begin with, irrespective of our participation in it. And so it's, it's uh, profoundly important that we don't miss what he's saying here. In fact, some of the greatest theologians and scholars and preachers throughout history view these 10 verses that we just read as the linchpin of the entire letter. Anders Nygren refers to them as the point where all the lines of Paul's thinking converge, both those of the preceding chapters and those of the chapters that follow. Martin Lloyd-Jones sees it as the very heart and center of the epistle, where Griffith Thomas says it's the great central feature and focus of the epistle. Okay, the, the entire letter, of course, is about what Jesus did for us, and these 10 verses of the letter explain why he had to do it. And so Paul says, sin came into the world, through one man, Adam, whose one evil deed underlies the whole discussion. In fact, Paul uses the word one 12 times just between verses 12 and 19 to emphasize the significance of this one act of sin by one man in juxtaposition, in, in contrast to the one work of grace by the one man, Jesus Christ. And of course, there are consequences as a result of the actions of each of them, which he lays out here, and then more specifically, what all of that produces in us is what Paul gets into next in chapter 6 when he starts talking about we again, which we'll get into. But for now, he's focusing on these two men, right, Adam and Jesus, as he explains that the consequences of Adam's sin and death that it brought into the world is that death spread to all men because all men sinned. And so even though uh, this was one act by one man, it involves the whole race of humanity, which incidentally is why it should concern us. It does concern us. In fact, when Paul says that death spread to all men because all sinned, Paul is saying, if you read it in the Greek, he's saying that all sinned in Adam. 
In other words, Adam's sin is the sin of all. Our sinful nature is the result of one man's sin. And listen, it's not that Paul is denying our own sin and the responsibility that we each bear as individuals for our own sin. In fact, Paul makes all of that clear throughout the letter that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The point is, that's actually not what Paul is talking about here. And again, it matters that we understand this because it puts what Jesus did and our need for what Jesus did into its proper perspective. And so again, Paul says, uh, although Adam was just one man committing one sinful act, that one act by that one man spread to all of humanity, everyone who would ever come after him. Adam's sin is the sin of all, which means we, you and I, are guilty of sin because Adam sinned, period. This is the doctrine of original sin, which isn't very popular today in our hyper-individualistic society. This idea that even if you never sinned, listen, if you never sinned in your entire life, if you never committed a sin, you still cannot get to God without Jesus Christ. Why? Because the whole world is under the wrath of God without Christ because of Adam's sin. Original sin. Is that fair? No. No, it's not fair. In our culture, we only want to have to answer for ourselves and what we've done. But listen, Paul is clear. Because of what one man did, because of the sin of Adam, the entire world was now subject to the wrath of God before any of us were even born. Of course, by the way, the it's not fair argument that many people use to reject the doctrine of original sin gets thrown out the window precisely because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just as the first century Jewish rabbinical text, 2 Baruch says, I love this quote, each of us has been the Adam of his own soul. Right, But the point remains, the point that Paul is making here, the fact that we are born into sin because of what Adam did, not because of something you did in the womb, right? Unless you're a twin and you punched your brother or something. It's not because you, uh, you cried when you were born. No, you were born into sin because of the sin of one man. And so if no one had ever sinned after Adam, right? Paul, we just read that Paul said he was blameless under the law. He couldn't get to God without Jesus, right? If no one had ever sinned after Adam, we would still be guilty through Adam's sin and the world would still need saving. Do you understand that? Therefore, because of one man, all are guilty. Verse 12, sin came into the world through one man. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Let me just read that one again. 
One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Was he fair or not? Adam's sin involved us all in a crisis of sin and death from which there is no escape other than Jesus Christ. A good friend of mine said to me just the other day, when I get to heaven, I've got some things to say to Adam. Now look, as bad as all of this is, for every condemning result of the action by the sin of one man, Adam, listed in these verses, there is a counteraction that brings salvation from the wrath of God by the one man, Jesus. And so throughout this whole passage, what Adam did and what Christ did are steadily held over against each other in stark contrast. And that is the whole point. As Paul explains, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not through your Perfect behavior under the law. This is the whole point. To draw our attention to the work of Adam that brings condemnation and the work of Christ that brings salvation. It's also why Paul removes us from the equation in these ten verses. This is why there's no we mentioned in these ten verses to take our focus for one second off of ourselves and what we do and instead put it onto Jesus and what he does. To show us that we cannot do one single thing to earn our way to God. No, because of what Adam did, all, he says, are guilty. So that now, no matter how good you may ever try to live your life, you are as guilty before God as the worst sinner among us. And yet at the same time, because of what Jesus did, listen, all the sins of all the people who ever exist throughout all of time are washed away for those who turn to Christ. All because of the one act of the one man, Jesus Christ. Now all can be saved from the wrath of God that we are all born under. And again, that's, that's why we're not the focus of this part of the story, because there's nothing we can do. Listen, there is nothing we can do to undo the work of Adam. Only the work of Christ can do that in us. 19th century British missionary to China, Hudson Taylor said, I used to ask God to help me. Then I asked if I might help him to do his work through me. So now as Paul continues, he comes back to the we part of the story. And remember, he's writing this letter to the church, those who've passed from Adam's death into a new life in Christ. Let's keep reading. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
When Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, he's likely responding here to a question that was being regularly posed at the time by the religious Jews, and it was probably making its way into the church. Those who would routinely try to make the case that this gospel of grace actually would lead people to keep on sinning against God. Why? So that grace may abound. And so Paul soundly refutes that argument by saying, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, if you're alive in Christ, you're dead to sin, which he makes even more clear in the verses that follow. And so even though we were born into sin, into a hopeless future because of the work of one man, Adam, Paul says through the work of the one man, Jesus Christ, you can actually have a new life, not an improved life, not a better version of the old life, but a brand new life in Christ. As Paul explains again in his letter to the church at Corinth, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The old has passed away. The old has passed away. Okay, everybody watching online, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. In case you're wondering, that's the RIV, the Rucci-inspired version. The reason I repeat that one phrase often is because that's the part I think we have the most trouble with. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul's simply echoing the words of Jesus here, by the way, who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9, 23. The cross, of course, being the ultimate instrument of death, in this case, death to self. Jesus was saying, look, if you're going to follow me, you've got to let the old man go. You must die yourself, die to yourself every single day, each day anew. And yet, in the very next verse, he goes on to say, whoever loses his life, by the way, for my sake, will save it. In other words, you're not just dying to yourself, you're also raised with Christ into what? A whole new life. As again, Paul echoes here in Romans, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, just like him, maybe walk, uh, may, might walk in newness of life. We might have a new life. This is profoundly good news, and yet the problem for many of us is we want the new life without having to die to the old one. And so even though we do have a completely new life in Christ, if you are truly a Christ follower, you have a completely new life in Christ. Yet sometimes we behave as if we don't. By the way, if that convicts you, just know that it convicted me first. I'm preaching to myself here. I'm in the process of building a new home. Now look, if you ever want to find out how patient and compassionate and Christ-like you actually are, just try investing most of your life savings into thousands of pieces of raw material and then turn those materials into a custom home with the help of a bunch of people who don't care nearly as much about that home as you do while you're giving them the rest of your life savings. There are days when I wonder if I'm really even saved or not because it's not always clear 
based on my behavior. Thankfully, my salvation isn't based on my work. It's based on his. And of course, our new life in Christ goes far beyond just a new behavior anyway, as we find all throughout the uh, New Testament. Once we're made new in Christ, of course, our behavior should change. But it's not just about behavioral modification. It's about total transformation. It's about a whole new identity. We are no longer the people we used to be. Once you're alive in Christ, Paul says, we too might walk in newness of life. This is how he says it to the church at Colossae. You've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Now, just remember... The church in Rome was as diverse as any other, as Paul already addresses earlier in the letter. And yet, to be honest, I'm not sure we can fully get our minds around what Paul is saying here, because I'm not sure we have a context today that compares to the one he was writing in then. I mean, we think our culture, our country is divided today. Listen, the first century world was deeply divided socially, culturally, politically, religiously, really in ways we can't even imagine. When Paul says there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What he's talking about is the loss of all identity outside of Jesus Christ. Okay, as believers and followers of Christ, outside of him, we have no other identity separate from one another. And, and the way he says it, by the way, couldn't be any more extreme. It's one thing to say there's not Greek or Jew, slave or free. I mean, that, that in and of itself was intensive, intensely provocative uh, of a statement to make to a first century group of Gentiles and Jews in the church who he's writing to, among others. But Paul throws the Scythians in the mix just for fun. Okay, The Scythians were a people group located along the northern coast of the Black Sea. To the Greeks, the Scythians were a violent uneducated, uncivilized, altogether inferior people. They were considered the lowest of the low, and the Jews thought no better of them. In fact, in the third and fourth books of the Maccabees, which were written in between the Old and New Testaments, somewhere around the end of the first century B.C. and the beginning of the first century A.D., the Scythians were described as the most cruel of warriors who tore the scalps off of their prisoners with their fingernails. It also says they would mix wine with their own blood before battle and then dip their weapons in it before drinking it. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, all the way back in the 5th century BC, the Scythian warriors would drink the blood of the first man they killed in battle and then collect the heads and scalps of their victims for trophies and then sew their scalps and skins together to make cloaks for themselves and quivers for their arrows. These people were as bad as it gets. And here's Paul, the apostle, saying, if you're a Christian, there's no longer any distinction between Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. Oh, hey, and by the way, Scythians too. What? Paul? Have you seen what they do? Do you understand where they come from? Do you know what they're guilty of? How can that possibly be? 
Well, it's because all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. All of us who turn to Christ, no matter where we come from, what we've done, or who we used to be, Paul says we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, including the Scythians, might walk in newness of life. When you're alive in Christ, the old man, your former self, has died and you have a new life regardless of your old life. Again, chapter 5, verse 15, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man. Jesus Christ, verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, even the Scythians. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's and obedience the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Do you understand what this means? Honestly, Do you get this? It means that no matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, or how bad your life may seem to be, when you turn your life over to Jesus Christ, you are given a new life in Him regardless of your old life. When you put on that new self, you have a new identity. You're no longer who you used to be. You have a new purpose, you have a new name, you have a new home, you have a new family. You are now someone wholly different from the person you once were. And so Paul simply says, hey, act like it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you've been made alive in Christ, you don't have to earn that new life in him. You simply have to embrace what is already yours and assume your new identity in him. Listen, whether you feel worthy of it or not is not the point, because in case you didn't know, not one of us is worthy of our new life in Christ. That's his free gift to us. Why? Because of his work, not ours. The 19th century English scholar Jay Vaughn, one of my favorites, he said, Christ is the sufficiency and the satisfaction of life. Ask the years that are gone. Take counsel of the past. What is satisfaction? Where has desire rested? When has ambition had enough? It has pleased God to treasure up all that man really wants in one treasury, the Lord Jesus Christ. And accepting there no man since the foundation of this world ever found it, he fills all things. He must fill your hearts. You will date your peace, your first true peace, to that day when you could say of Christ, he is all and in all to me. Let's finish our story for today, verses 5 through 11. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul says the power of sin has been broken in those who are now alive in Christ. The old self who you once were in Adam was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. When Paul refers to the body of sin, that's a reference to the rule of sin, meaning we're no longer enslaved to sin. Now, listen, Paul is not saying that Christians no longer sin. No, he's saying the tyranny, the domination, the, the rule of sin in our lives has been defeated so that we're no longer imprisoned by sin against our will. So there is still sin in our, in our lives, of course. I mean, we all know that there is. But because the mastery of sin has been broken in our lives to all who are alive in Christ, there is now freedom from sin. The doors of the prison cell of sin that once held us captive have been flung open by the work of Christ. The problem for us is we don't always want to leave the building. Sometimes we like what the cell provides. The hard truth is we live in prisons that we build around ourselves. We choose, sometimes daily, we choose to live as if we're still captive to things he set us free from the moment our lives were made alive in Christ. Of course, that doesn't mean it will always be easy. You know, living for Jesus and walking in the freedom that he provides sometimes is hard. In fact, he, he promised it would be. But the fact is, Jesus provides what he promises. But he also expects us to fight for it every day of our lives. You understand, there's no freedom without a fight. And just in case you don't believe me, listen, God gave the land of Canaan to the Israelites all the way back under the command of Joshua, right? Where God was crystal clear about the fact that the land was theirs. He gave it to them. And yet in the same breath, he told them to be strong and courageous. That's odd. If you've already given it to them, why do they need to be strong and courageous? It's because even though the land now belonged to them, they still had to drive out all the inhabitants of the land, everyone who would try to keep them from possessing all that God had given them. In other words, God was saying to his people, listen, this land is now yours, but you're still going to have to fight for it. Even though I've already given it to you, you still have to fight to actually possess what is yours. And although they started off doing what he told them they'd have to do in order to possess the land, they stopped short of driving out all of the inhabitants. Why? Because they got tired of the fight. To the point, they were willing to give up freely possessing all the land that belonged to them in order to be at peace with their enemies. So they sacrificed their freedom in order to avoid a fight. I'm telling you, God's people have been doing that very same thing ever since. 
The moment you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were set free. Free from fear, free from sin, free from doubt, free from all the things the enemy tries to leverage in your life to keep you from becoming precisely what God created you to become. You have been set free from all of it, but you still have to fight for what is yours. Why do you think the Apostle Paul at the end of his life said to Christians, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith, 2 Timothy 4, 7. Why did he say to Christians, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6, 11. Why did he say to Christians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. I'll tell you why. He said those things to Christians because we are at war. The moment you were born, the enemy declared war on your soul. And even though Jesus secured your freedom once and for all through his atoning death and resurrection, make no mistake about it, you can still willingly choose to subject yourself to fear and sin and doubt. Not because Jesus didn't provide freedom for you from all of that, but because you're not willing to fight for what is already yours. Why do we do that? It's because we get tired of the fight. We get tired of the fight to the point we'd rather be at peace with the enemy than to have to fight for the freedom that Christ has given us. And as a result, this world is full of Christians who live their lives racked with fear and sin and doubt because we're more afraid of what the enemy might do to us then we're hungry for what God wants to do through us if we would just fight for what he's already given us. So look, if you feel like you're continually gripped with fear or shackled by sin or overcome with doubt, well, the first thing you need to understand is if you are truly in Christ, he has already set you free from every fear, every sin, and every doubt the enemy will ever try to assault you with. But if you're going to walk in that freedom every day of your life, then you're going to have to fight for it. Because the moment you begin to take possession of what is rightfully yours, that is the moment the enemy is going to come at you with everything he's got. Which means you have a decision to make. What's more important to you, peace with the enemy or freedom from everything he tries to control you with? And I'll just tell you, uh, it's one or the other. Because you cannot have both. If, if you want to walk in all the freedom Christ has already provided for you, then you're going to have to fight for it, which means dying to self, leaving the old man behind, and walking in the new life that only he can provide. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Why? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Author Christine Kane said, being set free and walking in freedom are not the same. The first was done for us by Jesus, but the second we must choose to do ourselves in his strength and by his grace. Okay, look. Any limitations you may be experiencing in your life today, if you're a Christian, it's important that you understand it's not because you are helpless or hopeless. You get this, right? You're not a victim. 
If you're a Christian, you're not a victim. Because once you're alive in Christ, he says you're a victor. In fact, as Christians, we're called a lot of things in his word. Beloved brothers and sisters, children of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the body of Christ, the people of God, friends of God. How about this one? More than conquerors. We're called by many names in God's word, but the one thing we are never called is victim. Despite what you may think, you're not a victim. You're not a victim of your past. You're not because you've been given a new life in Christ, which means your past and any influence that may have ever had over you is long dead and gone. It also means you're no longer a victim to sin. You've been set free from sin. The prison doors have been opened. And so all that's left is to fight for what's already yours every day, to fight for the freedom you have as a new creation in Christ. And the way you do that is by removing yourself day by day. And listen, some days you have to fight to do it. You remove yourself from the center of your own story, just like Paul does in his story. Until Jesus and nothing else fills that void, until he becomes the center of your universe, preeminent over every other thing in your life, until you see him in every decision, in every action, in every conversation, in every purpose, until your past no longer holds you back and this world no longer holds you down. Why? Because you are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Let's pray.